Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Puerto Rico has two major crises. One is the crisis of colonialism, which is right now embodied by a fiscal control board appointed by the United States Congress, which is pushing austerity measures in Puerto Rico where we cannot handle uh, these types of disasters. And the second is that Puerto Rico is at the front lines of climate disasters. The island of Puerto Rico is in the dark after Hurricane Fiona triggers flash floods and landslides after crashing into the island just before the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Maria, which killed thousands of people and devastated Puerto Rico's electrical grid. We'll get an update from Democracy Now!'s Juan Carlos Davila in San Juan and from San Juan's former mayor, Carmen Yulín Cruz. This comes as Climate Week kicks off in New York City alongside the United Nations General Assembly. We'll also speak with climate scientist Michael Mann of the University of Pennsylvania, author of The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Then to London for the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. We'll speak with Kayendi Andrews, the UK's first professor of black studies, author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. He says his grandmother would have mourned the queen, but he finds that difficult. I guess it depends what you think a good job of being queen is. So if a good job of being queen is to represent white supremacy and to represent that link to colonialism, then yeah, I think she's done a very good job. And I think if you look at the royal family as an institution, I mean, it's, it's still very, very strong. It's weathered some heavy storms, including Prince Andrew, Meghan Markle and all this, and still going strong. And she's still very, very popular. So I guess on a, on a, on a has she kept the, the image of the royal family mafia very, very established? And yes, I think she's done a good job. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. More than a million residents of Puerto Rico remain without power a day after Hurricane Fiona smashed into the island, bringing 100-mile-an-hour winds and up to 30 inches of rain to parts of the island. On Sunday, Puerto Rico's entire electrical grid collapsed as Fiona's eye roared across the island's southwestern coast, triggering flash floods and landslides and washing away at least one major bridge. Governor Pedro Pierluisi described the damage as catastrophic. Fiona hit just two days before the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Maria, which killed thousands of people and devastated Puerto Rico's electrical grid and other infrastructure. Alaska's governor has declared a state of emergency after the remnants of Typhoon Merbach brought a 1,000-mile-wide path of destruction to the state's Pacific coastline. 
The massive storm system spawned flooding, prompted evacuations, knocked buildings off their foundations, washed away bridges and roads, and brought power outages to remote villages, many of them home to Native Alaskans. Merbach was Alaska's worst storm in a half-century, the most intense September storm ever observed in the Bering Sea, one of the strongest storms ever to hit Alaska. In Japan, nine million people have been ordered to evacuate their homes as one of the largest typhoons ever to hit Japan made landfall on the southern island of Kyushu Sunday night, with winds topping 110 miles per hour. The storm's forecast to bring flooding and landslides to Japan's main island of Honshu through Wednesday morning. The Japan Meteorological Agency classified the typhoon as violent, its most severe category, and Prime Minister Minister Fumio Kishida urged people to seek shelter. Do not go near dangerous areas. If you feel that you are in danger, do not hesitate to evacuate. Please take early action to save your lives. Evacuation at night is extremely dangerous. Please evacuate to safe areas like high places and sturdy buildings while it is still light. Here in New York, the 77th United Nations General Assembly opens today with the climate emergency and the war in Ukraine taking center stage. Ahead of the gathering, Secretary General Antonio Guterres called out nations for failing to protect future generations, decrying the, quote, sheer inadequacy of the global response to climate crisis, unquote. Today is also the start of Climate Week here in New York, with dozens of protests and climate-related activities scheduled around New York City. Bells tolled in London today 96 times as a state funeral for Queen Elizabeth was held at Westminster Abbey. More than 500 foreign dignitaries attended the funeral, including President Biden, leaders from Commonwealth nations, many members of other royal families, including the Emperor and Empress of Japan. The funeral was conducted by the Dean of Westminster, the very Reverend Dr. David Hoyle. We come to this house of God, to a place of prayer, to a church where remembrance and hope are sacred duties. Here, where Queen Elizabeth was married and crowned, we gather from across the nation, from the Commonwealth and from the nations of the world, to mourn our loss, to remember her long life of selfless service. The Queen's funeral was the largest police operation in U.K. history. Police reported placing sharpshooters on the roofs of every building within a mile of Westminster Abbey. In other news about the royal family, King Charles III was confronted directly by a protester over the weekend during a stop in the Welsh city of Cardiff. The man shouted at him, "'Not my king!' We'll have more on the Queen and her legacy later in the program. We'll speak with Kayendi Andrews, the UK's first professor of black studies, author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. The White House has denounced Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott for busing and flying asylum seekers to liberal states. This is White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. They used them as political pawns, treated them like chattel in a cruel 
premeditated political stunt. White House criticism came after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flew 50 Venezuelan asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard, an island off the coast of Massachusetts. Authorities in Massachusetts have since moved the asylum seekers to a military base in Cape Cod. On Friday, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey and six members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation called on the Treasury Department to investigate DeSantis for using federal COVID-19 relief funds to fly the asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard. Domingo Garcia, president of LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens, denounced the Republican effort to send asylum seekers to the island, New York City and Washington, D.C. I was in Washington yesterday, in Washington, D.C., and we had one immigrant who went into shock because he was diabetic. Uh, and his insulin had been refrigerated. He had to go to the hospital. Uh, we heard that there was a baby that also went to the hospital that had respiratory issues because they had been on a on a bus for 16 hours. You know, again, these are just a, it is unchristian, un-American, and un-Texan to use immigrants this way, fellow refugees. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has told Russia's President Vladimir Putin, "Quote." Today's era is not one for war. Modi's remarks at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan have been widely interpreted as criticism of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Modi's comments on Friday came after Chinese leader Xi Jinping also voiced questions and concerns to Putin about the war. Despite Modi's comments, trade between India and Russia has soared since the invasion of Ukraine despite Western sanctions. India now imports about 750,000 barrels of oil per day from Russia. That's up from about 20,000 barrels a day a year ago. On Friday, Russian President Vladimir Putin acknowledged Modi's concerns about the war. I know your stance on the conflict in Ukraine. I know about the concerns that you voice constantly. We will do everything for it to stop as soon as possible. Unfortunately, the leadership of the opposing side, Ukraine, has stated that they refuse to hold talks and that they want to reach their goals militarily, or as they say, on the battlefield. The United Nations has announced plans to investigate reports that mass graves have been discovered in the Kharkiv region in areas occupied by Russia until Ukraine's recent counteroffensive. Liz Thrassel, a spokesperson for the U.N. Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, spoke Friday. We have seen the reports uh, about um, um possible mass graves or what we call collective graves. Uh, we're aware of reports uh, to which more than 400 bodies were found in a collective grave in Izium. Um, our colleagues in Ukraine, in the Human Rights uh, Monitoring Mission in Ukraine, um, are following up on these allegations, and they are aiming at organising a, a monitoring visit to, to Izium uh, to determine the circumstances uh, of the death of these individuals. During Ukraine's recent counteroffensive, it recaptured about 3,400 square miles of land. That's more land than Russia had captured over the past five months. In other news on the war in Ukraine, Ukrainian state nuclear agency says a Russian military strike has hit the South Ukraine nuclear power plant. No damage was reported to the plant's reactors. The facility is Ukraine's second largest nuclear power plant. Meanwhile, the 35-nation board of the International Atomic Energy Agency has approved a resolution demanding Russia end its occupation of Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. 
A Russian brokered truce between Azerbaijan and Armenia is continuing to hold after fighting between the two nations left 200 people dead last week. Over the weekend, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Armenia and accused Azerbaijan of initiating the latest round of violence. Azerbaijan and Armenia have been locked in a decades-long dispute over control of the Nagorno-Karabakh region. In news from Central Asia, nearly 100 people have died in fighting between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan over the past week. A ceasefire between the former Soviet states was reached Friday, but both sides say some shelling has continued. Israel's bombed the Damascus International Airport in Syria again. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, the bombing killed five Syrian soldiers and two members of Iran-backed groups. The United Nations recently revealed an Israeli strike on the Damascus International Airport in June prevented the U.N. from flying humanitarian aid into Syria for two weeks. In recent years, Israel's carried out hundreds of attacks inside Syria, including multiple attacks targeting airports. President Biden has vowed again to defend Taiwan if it was attacked by China. Biden made the comment during an interview on CBS's 60 Minutes. We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago, and that there's a one-China policy, and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving—we're not encouraging them being independent. We're not—that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if, in fact, there was an unprecedented attack. So, unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. After the interview aired, the White House issued a statement trying to walk back Biden's comments, claiming U.S. policy on Taiwan has not changed. China criticized Biden's remarks, saying it, quote, severely violates U.S. policy over Taiwan, which China sees as a breakaway province. During the same interview on 60 Minutes, President Biden said the pandemic is over when asked by CBS's Scott Pelley. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. Many public health officials criticize Biden's comments, which come as the White House is pushing people to receive newly reformulated COVID-19 booster shots. According to data collected by Johns Hopkins, COVID killed 13,000 people across the U.S. over the past month, as 2.2 million new infections were reported. West Virginia Republican Governor Jim Justice has signed a near-total ban on abortion, making his state the second to outlaw abortion care since the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade in June. Under West Virginia's new law, licensed providers can lose their medical licenses if they perform banned abortions, while unlicensed providers could face felony charges and up to a decade in prison. There are very limited exemptions for medical emergencies or if a pregnant person can prove they're a survivor of rape or incest. And a 34-year-old man has pleaded guilty to threatening to bomb and shoot up the offices of the dictionary maker, Merriam-Webster. Jeremy David Hansen of California threatened the company's offices in New York City and Springfield, Massachusetts, after it updated its definitions of girl, woman, trans woman, and other gender terms. Meanwhile, a Massachusetts woman has been arrested for making a false bomb threat against Boston Children's Hospital. 
The hospital has come under attack recently by right-wing groups for establishing the first pediatric and adolescent transgender health program in the United States. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. When we come back, the island of Puerto Rico is in the dark after Hurricane Fiona smashed into the island, causing flash floods and landslides. This on the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Maria, which killed thousands. Stay with us. Lost in the moment again. Stuck where the road has no end Keeping the sword in our minds One day life will be kind We are not alive We are surviving every time Oh, we are not alive Only dreams inside our minds We are This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Puerto Rico, where more than 1.4 million residents remain without power after Hurricane Fiona brought 100-mile-an-hour winds and up to 30 inches of rain to parts of the island. On Sunday, Fiona's eye roared across the island's southwestern coast, triggering flash floods and landslides, washing away at least one major bridge. The governor, Pedro Pierluisi, described the damage as catastrophic. Fiona hit just two days before the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Maria, which killed thousands of people, devastated Puerto Rico's electrical grid. This time, the island-wide blackout reportedly happened before Hurricane Fiona made landfall. Puerto Rico's power company, Luma, blamed the bad weather and high winds and vowed to restore power sooner than it did after Hurricane Maria, when thousands went for months without electricity. Some of the few homes and businesses that have power now are running on rooftop solar power or using generators. President Biden has approved an emergency declaration. The situation could worsen today as the National Hurricane Center says parts of Puerto Rico could see 25 inches of rain. Meanwhile, Hurricane Irma is also set to cause major rain and mudslides as it moved on to the Dominican Republic. For more, we're joined by two guests. Carmen Yulene Cruz is the former mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico. She's joining us from Massachusetts, where she's the Weissman Fellow at Mount Holyoke College. And in San Juan, we begin in Puerto Rico. We're joined by Juan Carlos Davila, filmmaker, Democracy Now! correspondent. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Juan Carlos, let's begin with you. Can you describe where you are, how you're even talking to us, how you even have power when the whole island is out? Yeah, hello, Amy. Uh, thanks for having me uh, again on the show. Uh, 
the 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 little power that I have is because I've been preparing for this kind of situation to continue doing my 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 work, my journalistic work. So what I uh, do is that I uh, I have a system, an inverter system that I connect into the car, so I can uh, plug in the the necessary and the essential electronics to continue doing my work. You know, but you know, it's just you know uh, for for a couple of hours or something until I need to go back and charge again. And like myself, you know, many people have uh, uh, you know throughout these uh, last five years found different ways to to cope with the situation because uh, we know that we cannot rely in the national uh, electric grid that is now uh, privatized and that people needs to to find a. Uh, many ways to, to come up with, with solutions to, to deal with their immediate necessities. But the real, uh, the real, but the real uh, problem we are seeing or the real situation is that it is a very, uh, uh, it, it is a very uh, unequal, really, because the people who have uh, more power and, 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 and more money have been able to uh, install solar panels, have, have been able to disconnect through the grid. And meanwhile, the people who are uh, poor and the working class have been left off with this, uh, with this electrical system that basically doesn't work. I mean, and for people to be clear, um, uh, and I also made the mistake of saying Irma at some point, this is Hurricane Fiona, but of course it is so reminiscent of what happened five years ago with Maria and also with Hurricane Irma. Now the hurricane has moved on to Dominican Republic, which doesn't mean the devastation of Puerto Rico um, is over by any means, especially with information cut off from the inner parts of the island. But, Juan Carlos, if you can talk about the fact that this the energy, the electricity went out before, talk more about that, the island was even hit on Sunday. Yes. So uh, one of the, you know, Puerto Rico really, you know, is a, is a very complicated electrical system. Uh, one, one of the main issues is the weather, right? So uh, when, when the, when really, when the, the public, the, the distribution of the energy company was under under prepa and and the people who manage the the electrical grid were the uh, the workers from the UTR. You know, uh, whenever th there was a rain or, or, or bad weather, things would get uh, solved uh, uh, very quickly. But uh, but in this sense, you know, and, and this is something that we have been experiencing uh, for uh, for more than a year now since Luma started operating uh, last year in 2021, is that whenever there's like a, just a very a, a small uh, bad uh, you know wind or or, or bad weather very uh, or, or bad weather for just a, a couple of, of of hours or even minutes then just uh, the system collapses very very quickly and then the problem is that the rebuilding takes uh, so much longer so uh, so it, it has to be that you know uh, that really the the problem is that uh, ever since the beginning even when the when this uh, b before the storm started luma did not have the the personnel ready to deal with this kind of situation but uh, but it, it it happens on a on a weekly daily basis for many communities that people just ex ex experiment that so whether it was related to the hurricane or, or not it could have been uh, any 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 wind gust or something that that created that just be, be, before doing before the before hurricane fiona really made a landfall 
You know, when I was with you, Juan Carlos, in Puerto Rico after Maria, if you remember, we were sleeping in this house that was dark completely, no electricity after the storm. And next to us was a fully uh, electrified uh, bed and breakfast um, because they were using solar power on the roof. Talk about the use of solar power right now in dealing with Fiona. So I think if, if you might even look at the statistics here, uh, you know, we will see that Puerto Rico is an advanced country that is moving to solar. But what is happening is that really there's a there's this the, the industry of solar panels, you know, is uh, profiting and uh, from the, all this disaster that is happening in Puerto Rico. So there's a, a, a solar uh, a panel industry being driven by uh, disaster capitalism and. The big issue, uh, like like I was uh, mentioning earlier, is that it, the 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 solutions have been become uh, have become and transformed very unequal. Uh, people who have uh, the power, the privilege, and the money have been able to disconnect the grid to solve this kind of of situation. And this is really what and and you see it, and it's very disgusting. Even seeing uh, like like the ads in Puerto Rico, like uh, it is uh, it is a the, we are. Uh, we are really normalizing the situation, but uh, in that in that normalization, what is happening is that the the people who can afford it are the people who are who 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 can deal when when uh, such event happens, and it's and it is something that the government it is promo is promoting. It is not only promoting uh, the privatization throughout the the electrical grid, but it's also promoting all these industries of, of solar panels rather than really uh, find a way to develop a, a, a more community-oriented uh, solution uh, to solar panels like uh, community microgrids. This is something that uh, uh, the group uh, Casa Pueblo in Atuntas and other organizations with a proposal uh, called uh, Queremos Sol, other environmental organizations, are putting forward uh, a new plan uh, for the country to deal with this, which is based on, on, on rooftop solar, but rooftop solar connected through communities with a uh, community microgrids. But this is not what happened. The solution has been become individualized and the problem is going to continue because uh, what is going to happen is that uh, the, the prices for electricity are going to continue uh, increasing for, for regular people and, and for uh, the majority of the country. And uh, and these people uh, like myself who, who do not are not disconnected from, from the grid are going to be, are, are not going. We are right now paying a very expensive, the highest uh, in, in the United States, in, uh, when it comes to in relation to our income, the biggest, uh, the, the 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 highest energy bills with the worst, uh, really, uh, energy system. Juan Carlos, I want to bring into this conversation Carmen Yulín Cruz. She's the former mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico. Now she's Weissman Fellow at Mount Holyoke College in Western Massachusetts. It's great to have you with us, Yulín. Um, I can't help but, you know, go back five years to the images of you chest high and water as you were trying to help people um, with uh, President Trump coming down to Puerto Rico, hurling paper towels at the people who had come to see him. Your thoughts on how far or not how far Puerto Rico has come today? Well, what, what we are seeing, Amy, is a tragedy uh, unravel once again. And we're seeing it again in front of our, our eyes. Puerto Rico is what happens when climate change goes wrong. But it can also be, like when Carlos was mentioning, an example of what can happen when solutions are put into place 
that put people at the community level and the disenfranchised first. Um, not only rich people are putting solar panels, people are going into considerable debt uh, in order to have one or two panels in their homes to be able to deal with ailing family members, people that need respirators. But another thing that is important is that in Puerto Rico, when there is no power, no electrical power, because we have no power as a colony of the U.S., but when there's no electrical power, there's also no water services. So right now, about 750,000 people have no water services in Puerto Rico. This because water needs to be pumped up to the uh, taller parts of Puerto Rico. And without the electrical energy, that that does not happen. The Puerto Rican people have been told by the Puerto Rican government that they were generators in all of, of these uh water treatment plants uh, and and in the plants that make sure that the water gets to the different places. Now, as you saw five years ago, almost to the day tomorrow will be the anniversary of the horrendous Maria. What happens is that now people start not having clean, clean water and they start washing dishes in the creeks and in the rivers. And of course, that gives um, way to another wave of crisis. So th this uh, a hurricane is a crisis that begets another crisis and it would be the health crisis, the leptospirosis, people getting sick from not having uh, the appropriate uh, drinking water. So the Biden administration here has an opportunity and thankful that the president declared a state of emergency. But I think the Biden administration has an opportunity to show the world what <laughs> the goal is. It's not one life lost, not one. Um, as you mentioned, with Maria, close to 4,000 people lost their lives because bureaucracy and inefficiency were the guiding principle. The, the aid was weaponized. What, what, can, what needs to happen here, in my opinion, is number one, is send the aid directly to all 78 municipalities. It doesn't matter. And in the municipalities, where other political parties like Victoria Ciudadana, Proyecto Dignidad, the Partido Independentista Puerto Riqueño have members in the municipal legislatures, make them also be part of the distribution of, help, of aid. That distribution has to be robust and has to be people-centered and community-centered, meaning uh, not only give the aid to the government at the municipal level, but also give it to religious organizations and to community organizations that know exactly where each one of the people are and how much do they need. And, and the third thing I think, uh, and of the utmost importance is everyone must be deployed, you know, whether it's, uh, um, people from different, uh, uh, electrical authorities within the U.S must be deployed immediately as soon as the winds subside with one goal to lift up the electrical grid in, in Puerto Rico and to make sure that from now on, when we rebuild, and, and this is embarrassing, last week um, it was mentioned in Congress that out of $9 billion, with a B, dollars that had been allocated for the reconstruction of the grid, only $40 million have been used. So, so, Congress has to make FEMA accountable and has to make LUMA accountable. A plan has to be set forth, a blueprint for reconstruction and transformation of the system, making sure that resources are made available like they are in Massachusetts, 
where the state pays for you to change completely, to have your home completely solarized. But that needs to happen. And the accountability needs to be very, very transparent for everyone to see. Luma just said this morning, 100,000 people have uh, gotten their, their electrical power back, but we don't know where we know the towns, we don't know the sectors. This needs to be detailed information so that the people of Puerto Rico also become not only people that are surviving, but also people that hold their entities accountable for not making the disaster worse than nature has already made. Finally, Juan Carlos, uh, what's expected right now? The island, it said, and the people may be in the dark for days, maybe weeks. Once again, your final thoughts. I think really what we are seeing right now is really how effective is going to be this Luma contract. And really is the, is the first sign that it's really been put to the test. Uh, this is a category uh, one hurricane. You know, we, in Puerto Rico, we have had many uh, uh, storms like this in the past. And this is uh, and it is uh, very uh, first, uh, it is it is very difficult to see how in a hurricane that is not as, as powerful as Hurricane Maria, it has collapsed the entire country because when, when the national grid like this uh, of electricity uh, collapses, it really collapses the, the, the entire country. So uh, so we are really right now going to, to really know uh, how bad that contract is and how unfit uh, the company uh, Luma it is to provide uh, electrical service to the people of Puerto Rico. And one more thing that I want to add is that, you know, uh, the United States can be sending to Puerto Rico aid right now. But to really think uh, about the long-term solutions in Puerto Rico, we have to address colonialism. And colonialism in Puerto Rico is right now embodied through the figure of the Fiscal Control Board imposed by the United States Congress. And this uh, Fiscal Control Board has been the one responsible for uh, cutting public uh, funding and cutting a lot of uh, sources to the people of Puerto Rico. The austerity put forward and the neoliberal project of the Fiscal Control Board that includes the privatization of the electrical grid and give the contract to a company that really doesn't know how to handle the electrical grid in Puerto Rico, it, it has created the crisis because really the agencies, the government agencies of Puerto Rico do not have the resources to deal with this as they, as, as they could have done decades ago. You know, the problem uh, right now is that also the, the, the people of Puerto Rico, the agencies of Puerto Rico do not count with the resources. And the reason, the main reason why they don't count with the resources is that the U.S. Congress has put forward a fiscal control board that has imposed austerity measures in, in Puerto Rico and that has eliminated a lot of funding for agencies to deal with this type of situation. So this problem is really uh, uh, tied to colonialism. Uh, and the resources that we don't have are simply in order to pay an illegal debt to Wall Street bondholders. I want to thank you both for being with us. Of course, we'll continue to follow this developing story. Juan Carlos Davila, filmmaker, Democracy Now! correspondent, speaking to us from San Juan. The entire island of Puerto Rico is in the dark. Carmen Yulian Cruz, former mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, now at Mount Julio College in Western Mass. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Um, you know, today marks the start of Climate Week here in New York. 
York City, where more than 150 world leaders are gathering for the United Nations General Assembly. Some of them are coming directly from the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, including President Biden, set to address the Forum Wednesday. A day later than usual on Thursday, the Barbados prime minister is set to speak about her proposal for a new financial settlement for vulnerable countries struggling to pay off debt from climate disasters. Governments are also facing pressure to address their pledges to end fossil fuel subsidies amid soaring energy bills. Ahead of the 77th session of the U.N. General Assembly, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres had this warning for world leaders. Climate change seems to have moved out of the priorities for many decision makers around the world. And this is a suicide. We see emissions growing and we see fossil fuels become fashionable again. When we know that fossil fuels are the main responsible for the progressive war against nature that we have been waging in our history. Activists have also planned a week of actions at this year's Climate Week, which comes after a summer of heat waves and floods around the world. As Pakistan reels from one of the worst climate disasters in history, a third of Pakistan is underwater. Hurricane season is again underway, with Hurricane Fiona battering Puerto Rico, as just described, as well as Typhoon Mirabak, which flooded parts of western Alaska in what some are calling the state's worst storm in half a century. Meanwhile, nine million people have been ordered to evacuate their homes in Japan, where one of the largest typhoons ever to hit the country made landfall Sunday night. To talk about all of this, we're joined by Michael Mann, the presidential distinguished professor and director of the Penn Center for Science, Sustainability and the Media. He's now at the University of Pennsylvania. His most recent book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Professor Mann, welcome back to Democracy Now! I mean, you just heard the descriptions of Puerto Rico. We've got Japan. We've got Alaska. Pakistan, a third underwater. Your response. What connects all of this? Explain what's happening. Yeah, Amy, I would say it's good to be with you, but we rarely have good news to discuss. And with these uh, catastrophic events that we see playing out now in real time, we are witnessing the devastating consequences of climate change now. This isn't 10 years into the future. It's not way off in the Arctic. It's where we live now. We are experiencing devastating consequences of past climate inaction. And it really drives home the importance of taking action now. You know, the, the physics isn't that difficult here. You make the planet warmer, you're going to get more heat. You're going to get more intense and more frequent heat waves like we've seen this summer and every summer in recent history. You make the atmosphere warmer, it holds moisture, more moisture. So you get those flooding events. You get that, uh, that the, the sort of devastating flooding that we're seeing right now um, with these landfalling hurricanes. You make... The soils warmer in the summer, you dry them out more, so you get more drought. And what we see out west, the heat, the drought combined to give us those, those devastating wildfires. And so this isn't rocket science. The physics here is very basic, and it tells us that we're reaping what we've sown. We're now experiencing devastating climate impacts. So can you talk about 
right now what you feel needs to be done and the significance of, I mean, you're a scientist, you were at Penn State, now you're at University of Pennsylvania. Um, the way climate science was disparaged, uh, now I think so much more embraced all over the world. But what has to happen at this moment, the midst of climate week here in New York and right before the UN COP, what actually do countries have to commit to? Yeah, you know, uh, the worst thing that can happen to you as a climate scientist is that your predictions come true. And that's what we're seeing happen. And so, you know, those who used to deny the reality of climate change, uh, they can't anymore because, of course, we are all now seeing the impacts with our own two eyes. That doesn't mean they've given up. Polluters are still using every tool in the book. And that's what my book is about to try to prevent the actions that are necessary. So what do we need to do? Look, we need to recognize we've made some real progress here. The Inflation Reduction Act here in the United States is by far the most comprehensive climate legislation that's ever passed the U.S. Congress. It starts to get us on the path that we need to be on to limit warming below a catastrophic three degrees Fahrenheit, where we see the worst consequences of climate change. It starts to get us on that path, but it doesn't quite get there. And so we need to get go further. We need to reduce carbon emissions here in the United States by at least 50 percent by 2030. The uh, IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, maybe gets us about 40 percent. So we've got to go further than that. And look, right now, the, um, you know, the, the gatekeeper for climate legislation in the United States is a coal state Democrat in Joe Manchin. Only climate legislation that's approved by him can pass under these current uh, sort of in, in our current politics. That's why voters need to turn out in droves in these midterm elections so we can get a large enough majority of climate advocates, Democrats, um, and others who support climate action in Congress so that we can go further, so we can get more aggressive uh, climate legislation passed that'll put a price on carbon, that'll provide more subsidies for renewable energy, that will block new fossil fuel infrastructure, no less than the IEA, no uh, you know, cheerleader for um, renewable energy has said that if we are to keep warming below that catastrophic level of three degrees Fahrenheit, there can be no new fossil fuel infrastructure. That means we can't continue to fund new pipeline projects as we're currently doing here in the United States. Why is a Category 2 hurricane like Fiona that just swept through Puerto Rico—we don't even know the extent of the damage as it moves on to the Dominican Republic—causing so much damage in Puerto Rico compared to a Category 5 Hurricane Maria? Also, why—what's uh, the significance of it appearing so late in hurricane season? And then— also, why the hurricane that is now the typhoon that has hit Japan is considered like the worst in half a century. What is causing this? Yeah. So, again, it, it's pretty basic. Uh, the warming of the oceans, the planet's warming up, the oceans are warming up. Um, that means there's more energy. There's more evaporation from the oceans. And it's that evaporation that provides the energy to intensify those storms, and it's what provides them all of that moisture. And so we get stronger, more intense storms, and they contain a lot more rainfall in them, so we get much more flooding. And that's what we're seeing over time. Now, the vagaries of any particular storm, we can't say this storm wouldn't have happened if not for climate change. What we can say is this particular storm was stronger, it was wetter, and it was more damaging than it would have been because of climate change. And we can make that directly. And the comparison of the Atlantic storms to the Pacific storms? 
Yeah, this is a global, you know, the physics here don't respect individual ocean basins. Everywhere you go, warmer oceans mean more intense hurricanes or typhoons, as we call them over there, and and worse flooding with these storms. And, and that's really what we're seeing here. And, you know, this is really just sort of the tip of the iceberg. Um, the good news is we can prevent this all from getting worse if we bring those carbon emissions down you know, as I said, 50% uh, within the next decade, down to zero by mid-century, we can prevent further warming of the planet and worsening of these effects. But if we continue to burn fossil fuels, all of this only gets worse. This only becomes a glimpse of what is to come. Michael Mann, we thank you for being with us, presidential distinguished professor and director of the Penn Center for Science, Sustainability and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. His most recent book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Next up, the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. We'll speak with Kayendi Andrews, the U.K.'s first professor of black studies, author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. Stay with us. by Celeste here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. We end today's show in London, where the coffin carrying Queen Elizabeth II has just been placed in a hearse bound for Windsor Castle following the state funeral at Westminster Abbey. More than 500 foreign dignitaries attended the Queen's funeral, including President Biden, leaders from Commonwealth nations, many members of other royal families, including the emperor and empress of Japan. The funeral was the largest police operation in U.K. history. Police reported placing sharpshooters on the roofs of every building within a mile of Westminster Abbey. The funeral conducted by Dean of Westminster, the very Reverend Dr. David Hoyle. Come to this house of God, to a place of prayer, to a church where remembrance and hope are sacred duties. Here where Queen Elizabeth was married and crowned, we gather from across the nation, from the Commonwealth, and from the nations of the world, to mourn our loss, to remember her long life of selfless service. In related news, King Charles III was confronted directly by a protester over the weekend during a stop in Cardiff who shouted to him, not my king. <laughs> We have to pay for your parade. Thank you for coming. The taxpayer pays 100 million for you. What for? Me for Venice. 
go to Birmingham, England, where we're joined by Kayendi Andrews, professor of Black Studies in the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University. He's actually the UK's first professor of Black Studies, author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. His recent piece for Politico headlined, I Don't Mourn the Queen. In it, he writes, My paternal grandmother was born in colonial Jamaica in 1914 and was raised on the fairy tales of the mother country and nobility of British royalty. She migrated to Britain in search of better opportunities in the mid-50s as part of the so-called Windrush generation, who helped to rebuild the nation after the Second World War. Yeah. A picture of yeah, the Queen had pride of place in her front room, and where were she alive today, she would have wholeheartedly joined in the collective grief. But my father grew up in the 60s, facing the cold realities of British racism, and could never feel any warmth to either the nation or its figurehead. Professor Kayendi Andrews, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, instead of me reading your words, why don't you tell us that story and talk about the coverage of the Queen and what the Queen's passing means, not only for Britain, but for the Commonwealth and the realms. Do you think this could mean the end of empire? Better? Can you hear me, Professor Andrews? Yes, I can hear you. Sorry. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I think you captured a lot of that with the political piece. And then what is happening today is this collective grief of the country. And as a black British person, it brings to mind W.B. Du Bois's idea of double consciousness when he said that being black and being American, they just sometimes they, they, just, they just clash so much that you feel alienated from the society. And seeing all this collective grief and this mourning and people queuing 24 hours of little kids uh, so they can stare at what was likely an empty box, it just it just seems like the country's gone it's kind of collectively mad around this. There's, there's, it's something that we just don't have a connection to for millions of us in this country. Just have never saw the Queen as somebody who represented us and actually saw the Queen as somebody who represented the very racism that we face on a daily basis. You know, I talked about the Windrush generation. That's what you write about. Your paternal grandmother came to uh, Britain as a part of that from Jamaica. Can you explain that more to people who are not familiar with what happened? Yes, yeah, so my family was part of the British Empire. We have to remember that Britain isn't just these little islands. What made Britain great was this massive empire that included uh, Jamaica, where my family were from. And in Jamaica, it was uh, slavery. We were taken there, similarly to African-Americans taken to, to America. I always say the Caribbean is like the American South. But one of the things that happened with my grandmother generation is they were born in Britain. They had British schooling, British education. They were taught that Britain is the mother country and the Queen is great and it's all wonderful. So my grandmother grew up loving the Queen, loving Britain, had lots of hope when she came and migrated here. And she had a picture of the Queen on her wall till she died and would have been in one of those queues to go see the coffin. But the realities of racism are very different when she got here. When my dad got here as a young man and grew up and, and saw all the same racism that African-Americans experienced, police brutality, problems with schools, segregated housing. So we grew up not feeling any connection to Britain and obviously not feeling any connection to the to the figurehead of the nation state. Your father chose to leave Britain and go back to Jamaica? He retired a few years ago. Yeah, to be fair, he'd always kind of been going back to Jamaica for, for weeks. He's never really, he's never, the weather never really took it, never really took the weather here. But my father was part of the uh, Black Power movement in Britain, uh, very much saying, look, this state, it doesn't represent us. We can't get progress here. 
We have to have our own education system, our own schools. I mean, this is how Black Studies eventually came about. In we said, actually, this, this the curriculum isn't for us. The universities aren't for us. Can we do something different? And the Queen is the head of the nation. Because the King now is the head of the nation. They do represent what the nation is. And racism is as British as a cup of tea, which is why so many of us reject both the nation and the monarchy. I thought it was very interesting how you talked about black Brits and black Americans, how here in the United States, you're talking about seeing racism every day on a daily basis. And in Britain, it's not only in Britain, but it is the empire. It is the Commonwealth that's not so often seen. Uh, it was exported to the colonies. Yeah, I mean, the big difference between America and Britain is that Britain essentially did its racial violence off off, off campus, if you like. So in the Caribbean, in India, there's been very few of us actually in the United Kingdom on the islands, only until this is what we call the Windrush generation post-1948. So whereas in America, you have, you know, there's black people in America before there is America. Racism is coded into all the laws. It's so obviously in the constitution. In Britain, it's different because we really have only been here in large numbers relatively recently. But the problems are exactly the same. I mean, British racism and American racism are the same, right? Britain founded America. It was Britain that first took enslaved Africans to America. So it can seem like racism is different here, but it's actually not. It's exactly the same. Gold, tobacco, sugar, cotton. Queen Elizabeth I, um, you say, launched Britain's slave trade. Talk about these commodities and what they meant for the people, where they were grown, those that brought that wealth to Britain that we're seeing transferred from one generation to the next in the royal family. Yeah, so we think what made Britain Britain you know, prior to the 16th century, before the British Empire, before Britain got involved in slavery, Britain was a, a small country in the North Atlantic, doesn't have many resources and wasn't really going anywhere. What made Britain take off was its involvement in, in the slave trade and the Royal African Company, which is the company founded uh, to initially start enslaving Africans for the British Empire, was the company that enslaved more Africans than any company in the world. Britain was the premier slave trading nation. And that, and all the things, if you think about what made Britain Britain, first it is gold and it is silver, it is then financialization, the stock market, etc. Then it's tobacco. And those are the things which power Britain's development. So on one hand, you have Britain making massive strides, the Industrial Revolution, becoming this great nation at the top of the world. But then look at what happens to the people who had to do that. The Caribbean, for example, is a perfect example of where my family's from. We're taken there in chains, uh, made to produce all this wealth. Uh, sugar was the first one that really pushed uh, Britain forward. But then you look 200 years later, how is somewhere like Jamaica doing? It's one of the poorest countries in the world. And that's not an accident. That's because... Um, the whole country and the economy was designed to, to drain money out and give it to Britain. And the best example of this is when they ended slavery in, the, in 1838, eventually, uh, the British government paid the largest pay, payment ever, equivalent to about £100 billion, if you look at GDP, to the slave owners. And the enslaved got nothing. And in fact, had to work off their, had to, had to be, had to work for four years, 75% of their time as slaves to prove they were fit to be free. And we still see the legacy of that today. Um, if you can talk about expressing dissent today in Britain, um, the whole issue of whether you can say you are against the monarchy, that you want it to end. 
Well, it's interesting. I'd say like I've, I've spoken to probably about 20 journalists. I've done interviews like this all week. Not one of them has been with the British press. There has been wall-to-wall coverage of the funeral. Like turn any TV channel on, it's just queen, 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 queen. And no dissent, no questioning the role, no questioning the, the future of the monarchy, none of this. It really has been a week of propaganda, which has come to a crescendo today where absolutely everything has closed. And you did report on some of the, you know, the way that protests are being are being dealt with. I mean, honestly, if you just look, step back from this and said, well, actually, how has this been treated? It's not too far from fascism, actually. And it is, it is, and people say it's not the right time now. When else would be the best time to question the role of the monarchy when there is a 70-year reign of what a very ended? Surely now is the perfect time to wonder why on earth we would have this monarchy, why on earth it would represent 14 other countries in the world where the, the monarchy is head of state. And even in Britain, this is, a, this is an old institution, deeply racist, deeply classist, deeply patriarchal. It just needs to go. And this is the perfect time to discuss when it should end. If you could uh, also address the issue of those who talk about the Queen, uh, like the conservative commentator Candace Owens, speaking about British colonization of Africa on her show The Daily Wire earlier this month. The real truth of the reason why people hate the Queen has nothing to do with the colonization. It has nothing to do—which, by the way, just to be clear, um, the Brits invading Africa— actually represents, and this is going to get me in trouble, but it was, if you look at how forward it brought the African colonies, it ended up being a net positive. Now, this is, of course, people, it's going to get me in trouble because people somehow think that Africans were living happily ever after and things were great. And then the horrible English, British descended upon and murdered everybody. And the French suddenly murdered everybody. And that just isn't the truth. Obviously, the African nations had slavery, just like um, the European nations had slavery. Professor Kayendi Andrews, if you could respond. Well, unfortunately, some people uh, like to make money from uh, being the blackface of white racism. And, and Candace Owens has a very good history of this. I mean, that is the perfectly nonsensical view of the past. Actually, when Britain came into to, when Europe in general, and Britain in particular, came into Africa to enslave people, Europe was behind, was far behind. In the 15th century, Europe was probably the only place in the world in a dark age and came into Africa. And one of the ways, and the, the, the main way that Europe takes over is the slave trade. It is draining out Africans to, 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 to get the commodities, gold, silver, tobacco, et cetera, et cetera, that then enriches Europe so that Europe can colonize. I mean, colonization in Africa is actually for a reason. Most countries on the African continent were not directly colonized by European powers for, for more than 100 years because it took centuries of draining out African people, a barbaric system of slavery, which never existed on the African continent, which totally not only destabilized uh, Africa so that Europe could take over. The idea that slavery and colonialism somehow positive for Africa is frankly insane. I mean, just look at global in a poorest part of the world is the place uh, is the so-called sub-Saharan Africa. The place of the lowest uh, life expectancy is so-called sub-Saharan Africa. Anybody with their eyes open looking at this honestly could not possibly think that Africa has benefited from anything that Europe has done. As we wrap up this show, we have 30 seconds. Kayendi Andrews, what would you like to see now? I mean, you have the song God Save the Queen is now changing to God Save the King um, with uh, now King um, Charles III. Your thoughts? I think it is time now to end the anachronism of what is the British monarchy. It's 70 years, certainly, I think. And when we say the Commonwealth, that's just a former British Empire. Let's not 
I think many countries are going to think about removing the Queen as head of state, including my own country, um, Jamaica. But I think also in Britain, like this, this monarchy is a, it's a terrible symbol. If we want to have an anti-racist Britain, if we want to learn the lessons from the Black Lives Matter summer, if you want a, a public space which, which includes the millions of children of empire in it, you have to get rid of the monarchy. Kayendi Andrews, we want to thank you for being with us, professor of black studies in the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University. He's the author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. We'll link to your piece in Politico. I don't mourn the queen. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. 